Don Ho, and I'll remember you. I remember him. I think he did Tiny Bubbles, and that was the one I, my dad always used to sing in the silo with me, and we'd listen to it as it, as it echoed up the, the hollow chambers of the empty silo. Anyhow, it is 10 o'clock, and you are listening to A Minnesota Morning at KMSU Radio 89.7 FM in Mankato and KMSK 91.3 FM in Austin, online at KMSU.org. Broadcasting from the campus of Minnesota State University, Mankato, big ideas and real-world thinking. In news headlines, sad news to report, officials believe the body of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts has been found a University of Iowa student who has been missing for more than a month. The 20-year-old woman was last seen July 18th jogging in her hometown of Brooklyn in central Iowa. Greg Wiley, the vice president of Crime Stoppers of central Iowa, says a body found Tuesday is believed to be Tibbetts. No information has been released about where the body was found. A news conference is scheduled for later today. Wiley says nearly $400,000 reward fund for her discovery will now become a reward for information leading to the capture of any suspects. And in other news, a southern Minnesota teenager will serve jail time for taking part in an assault that left a high school football teammate unconscious last fall. 19-year-old Dalton Nagel of Blue Earth was sentenced Monday to 15 days in jail with credit for four days he already spent in jail. Nagel earlier pleaded guilty to a felony charge of aiding and abetting third-degree assault in the attack of the 16-year-old teammate at a house party in October. And a Minnesota man has been charged with aiding the suicide of his wife, who was reportedly suffering from unexplained pain. 61-year-old Thomas Hauk of Eden Prairie was charged Monday. The criminal complaint says he called 911 last week to report his wife had euthanized herself. The complaint says he later admitted he held a plastic bag over her head and turned on a nitrogen tank as she died. And an Omaha-based company has agreed to pay a half-million-dollar fine levied by federal polluters or excuse me, federal regulators citing spill protection violations at production facilities in Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says Ag Processing Incorporated did not have adequate Clean Water Act protections at several vegetable oil and biodiesel production facilities. It is three minutes past 10, and you are listening to a Minnesota Morning. And joining us now, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat from somewhere near Heartland, Minnesota. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning. I hope you're doing well. I am rocking in the free world here in beautiful Heartland. <laughs> it, it's uh, it's so cool because I am the let's see I'm the executive VP of the Northern Freeborn County chapter of the Don Ho Appreciation Society. Really, that's a, yeah. that's a, so exciting. So you must have known the what are the chances? Tiny bubble just... song too. <laughs> you know when you remember in the state we had the old stave silos where you had to. You know, take the doors out, put the doors in as the haylage and silage went up and down. And then my dad would have to do something with the loader. And we would be in there and we would sing. And that was one of the songs we'd do, just tiny bubbles in the wine. <laughs> and I just remember that just fond memories of echoing in the silo. And that sweet smell of silage. Yes. It's just, uh, it's hard to explain that smell. It was like, uh, uh, oh, the, the smell in school when they made those... Uh, uh, the blue ink where they made copies for everybody for oh. the tests and things. <laughs> the that carbon same, copy stuff? <laughs> yeah, that same smell came off there, and it was so good. I hope everyone is just having their best day ever. I do want to thank some folks. Uh, I want to thank Over the Back Fence in Lanesboro for allowing me to be on stage with them. Those wonderful players do some 
radio theater over there, and uh, also there was a group called the Singing Lawyers from the Twin Cities who were really, really good. It was it was fun being there and to be, play a small part in that. It's just uh, I look forward to it every year. I also want to thank all the good folks that have floated with me on the Pelican Breeze, uh, everyone at the Steel County Free Fair, and the five youngsters who I had the privilege of putting a monarch butterfly in their hands, and they watched them fly away, and these great smiles, and it just made uh, being there, uh, driving a thousand miles to be there would have been worth it. And to everyone at the Henderson Hummingbird Hurrah that was held this past weekend, I tell you, the hummingbirds and humans are at their very best in lovely Henderson, so it was uh, just a treat being there. A lot of nice people and uh, a lot of great hummingbirds, butterflies, gardens, and all these sorts of things. And also, uh, folks, uh, a caller asked, she said, mention this, so I, I will mention it. Uh, my column in the this month's Birdwatcher's Digest is titled, Shouldn't Your Bird Dog Be Bigger Than, your do- than the Bird? <laughs> so shouldn't your bird dog be bigger than the bird? And it's a story about uh, my uh, little chihuahua, uh, Sancho, that was uh, my bird dog buddy for a long, long time. And Birdwatcher's Digest, of course, available by subscription, but also at uh, wonderful Barnes & Noble. Uh, they have them there. So I... Uh, in Henderson, I heard scissor grinder cicadas, and I, I don't hear them where I live. I talked to a friend that was over there, Tom, Tom, well, friends, Tom and Lisa Bovers, and they said, we don't have them. We just, it's cool to hear them here. And I know a lot of people probably get tired of hearing that. What we have here in beautiful Heartland are annual or dog day cicadas. And, and they're the are, ones that continuously... Um, buzz versus the scissor ones aren't they limited more in their the length of their buzz or something yeah the uh, the dog days do a long one and okay. i know rich asked last week and it's up to i timed one it was up to 15 <laughs> seconds it did this so and that's an annual dog day and it sounds like an electric saw with that and then at the end where you shut that saw off and you hear that like that and that's their song the scissor grinder cicadas their song is like uh, an old time boy we had a guy that came out to the farm and he didn't have electricity in his truck or anything but he would sharpen scissors and knives and he'd ask my mother he said well bring one out and i'll sharpen it free so mom would look around for a favorite (laughs) one that had grown dull so she was getting her free worth and she'd bring it out, and he'd sharpen it. And what he had were pedals that he turned on there to sharpen them, and it turned this grinding wheel. And it sounded just like that, like somebody sharpening scissors or a knife. So I was uh, happy to hear them. Oh, speaking of Tom and Lisa Bovers, uh, they're just the nicest people on earth. Uh, and they, he said for the first time in their garden, they've had our friend Karen, Japanese beetles, and he said, you know, when you first got them, you have to find out what they are and then how to get rid of them. So he said some of them were up high on stuff, so it was hard to, for him or Lisa to get to. 
So he came out with a light spray from a water hose, and he put down plastic tarp on the ground, and he'd knock the beetles down onto that, and then he would dump them into a pail of soapy water. The first day he did that, he had 1,600 beetles fall Oh, my word. Oh, wow, because I know I picked at least 500 or so by, by hand and put them in the water, but, boy, that'd be a quick way to do it, though. Yeah, well, Tom and Lisa, they're just smart. I, like, every time I talk to him, I, I learn so much. He said the second day he did it, he had 1,000. Okay. And, but he said now the numbers are going down, but their numbers are going down. And, uh, yes. We'll, uh, so it's, it's just, uh, and as I mentioned before, there's three to 400 plants now that they have found them eating. Sadly, one of those is milkweed. So they will also feed on milkweed and on the milkweed seeds. So... I'm uh, our grape jelly feeders here right at the window right next I can I could reach out and touch this Oriole if it were not for the glass there uh, they were still busy our grape jelly feeders are still busy with Baltimore Orioles um, but they look like they're in a hurry and the local nesting season here is pretty compressed for neotropical migrants like the Baltimore Orioles so but it's just fun to see them I saw some Cooper's hawks in a yard here the other day and not my yard but cooper's honks do nest here they begin their breeding season in the spring they build nests of sticks lined with bark and green twigs and they locate them 25 to 50 feet high in a tree usually three quarters of the way up in a tree and she'll lay two to six eggs that hatch in 30 to 36 days the young leave the nest 27 to 34 days, I think I'm right on that. And the parents continue to feed and protect the fledglings till they're eight weeks old. So they're just around. I had a uh, ruby-throated hummingbird buzz by my beak. I actually had quite a few of them over there at Henderson at that wonderful garden. You know, I was thinking this was a, this was a female or a young one because a lot of the males have gone through already. But a male probably weighs a tenth of an ounce. And I thought about that. I've read where they have a thousand to fifteen hundred of that one ounce being feathers. Although one old study showed they had nine hundred and forty feathers, and it may not sound like many, but boy, it's more than I have. Uh, ben said that he'd uh, heard a report that all birds are related to dinosaurs, and wondered if I would uh, what my take on that is. Uh, I'm gonna quote something from the Natural History Museum. It's just a wonderful place. And it says that birds evolved from a group of meat-eating dinosaurs called theropods, which to me sounds like a vitamin. You take <laughs> theropod each morning. But, well, back to the Natural History Museum. Uh, that's the same group that Tyrannosaurus rex belonged to, although birds evolved from small theropods, not huge ones like T. rex. The oldest bird fossils are 150 million years old, give or take. And these ancient birds look quite a lot like small feathered dinosaurs, and they had much in common. Their mouths still contain sharp teeth, but over time birds lost their teeth and evolved beaks. Can you imagine coming face-to-face with a toothy pigeon? After more than 140 million years in charge, the reign of the dinosaurs came to an abrupt end when a huge asteroid strike and massive volcanic eruptions caused disastrous changes to the environment. 
Most dinosaurs went extinct. Only birds remained. Over the next 66 million years, birds evolved in many ways, which enabled them to survive in lots of different habitats. Today there are, it said here, 11, at least 11,000 bird species, and um, folks argue about that. But, but with such a close relationship to the extinct dinosaurs, why did birds survive? The answer probably lies in a combination of things, their small size, the fact that they can eat a lot of different foods, and their ability to fly. And this, uh, Ben, was from the Natural History Museum. Um, Rita Granson. <clears throat> Rita is a, uh, a wonderful person who lives down in Mason City. She said, I am seeing uh, warblers right on the schedule through Parker's Woods, uh, Canada Bay-Breasted, uh, Perula, Blackburnian, Tennessee, Chestnut-Sided, and Red Starts. Red-eyed vireos were numerous. The catbird was the only other migrant. Unfortunately, the barred owl's roosting tree of the fall and winter came down with the last storm. Richard Braskett said, Yesterday a juvenile cowbird sat on my deck railing, being fed by a half-sized chipping sparrow. The cowbird would flap its wings in a frenzy, and then the sparrow would feed it. It repeated this several times before flying away. Paul and, oh gosh, Paul, you know how I am with names. Some people have sort of a gift with names. I don't know how they do that, but... I'm going to say Sukhanek, it's S-U-C-H like such, and then A-N-E-K. Well, Paul said he saw a rough at Freeborn Lake in Freeborn County, and the bird was on the mud flats with a large flock of mainly pectoral sandpipers. In the north basin of Freeborn Lake, adjacent to the town of Freeborn, I parked near the corner of County Road 10 and Lakeside Drive and walked to the beach there. A scope is necessary to scan the hordes of birds. A bird is probably a female, so lacks any rough. It is chunky and bigger than the pectorals, but there are lesser and few, and a few greater yellow legs mixed in, so not that easy to pick out. I spent quite a while obtaining some digiscope photos, so I hopefully obtained adequate documentation. There were also a few rednecked and Wilson's phalaropes. Along with other common species of shorebirds, it is a pretty special opportunity for shorebirds in Minnesota, and there could be other rarities mixed in. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I've stopped there a few times. Boy, there were sure a lot of pectoral sandpipers and did see some uh, fallow ropes and other things there. Everything was great. Uh, Danny Tuttle of Twin Lakes asked about snapping turtles and their eggs and the nesting and how all that works. Uh, Dan, breeding takes place any time that the turtles are active, but occurs most frequently in the spring and the fall, and then during June, typically. Females travel to open areas that are suitable for nesting. They, they can travel over a half mile from water. And suitable nesting areas, they're open and sunny, contain moist but well-drained sand or soil. So sandy areas or sandy banks and fields are common nesting areas, but also gravel roads and lawns, and that's where we see them probably most are on gravel roads. The female uses her hind feet to dig out a cavity, lays 10 to 100 eggs, using her hind feet to guide the eggs into that nest. The eggs are, oh, maybe a quarter inch and a quarter in diameter. They're white. They have a leathery shell. And once the eggs are laid, 
laid the female covers the nest with sand or soil and returns to the water. Depending upon the weather, the eggs will hatch in 50 to 125 days. And the incubation temperatures affects the sex of the hatchling turtles, with more females hatching during warmer temperatures and, of course, more males hatching during cooler temperatures. And these hatching turtles or hatchling turtles have used their eggs their egg teeth and claws to break out of the eggs, out of the shell. And then they must dig their way out of the nest and find water. And they're about as they're about as long as the eggs were in diameter, inch and a quarter. And they're vulnerable to predation. And from any given clutch of eggs, 60% or more of the young may be lost to predators. And what... Uh, preys on them, raccoons, skunks, foxes, mink, uh, some birds, uh, large fish, and large frogs. Uh, Tim Scott sent me an article from the New York Times about the Super Bowl of beekeeping, and it was about one of my favorite food items, almonds. I, oh, I like almonds. Uh, almond growing in California is a $7.6 billion industry that wouldn't be possible without the 30 billion bees and hundreds of human beekeepers who keep the trees pollinated. So it's uh, our almonds are depending on those bees. So thank a honeybee when you get a chance today. Uh, Jerry Pruitt of Rochester said, Seeing warblers after the rain, Tennessee, chestnut-sided, Nashville, probably others, but they were high in the wet, dense tree foliage and low light. Dave Mullenbach of Albert Lee said, What is the light-colored plant is covering everything as I drive down I-90. That, David, is wild cucumber. In late summer, you will notice trees or shrubs that are festooned with crowns of white flowers that obviously are not woody, a woody plant blooming. And they're supposed to smell really good, too, aren't they? They smell lovely. Yeah. Yeah, that's in the... I think you can still buy them at nurseries. Um, so they just because probably because of that. They seem invasive though, because you can drive along at sixty miles an hour and and see them along. I know my husband and I were going over to the Steele County Fair last week, and he said, "What in the world are those?" And sure enough, uh, this earlier this week or was it last week, the uh, master gardener listserv somebody asked what it was, and and they said it's that wild cucumber. And it grows pretty prolific. It says it doesn't necessarily kill the other plants. It might stress them out, but in general, it's probably, it's a native. So I guess they say it's okay. Yeah, and it's an annual, so which is good in the way that it doesn't. You think of um, like grapevines, they just get that huge vine mm-hmm. that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So it, it can cause problems for uh, what it's growing on just because of its weight. These guys, these are wild cucumbers that we're seeing for the most part. There are burr cucumbers, but you will find them more in wet, uh, shady areas. And these are not edible, I understand. No, you would, uh, oh, it would be a bad thing if you ate those, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, they cause burning reaction in, in some people. And I, I told some folks, I, I gave a talk about wild cucumbers and some of the other plants growing around, and I said, uh, if you enjoy being sick to your stomach and having diarrhea, <laughs> it'd probably be the, oh, it'd be the thing you'd want to be eating. <laughs> you know, it, the plants look like cucumbers. For those of us who raise cucumbers, it, it's 
has a similar look. When I was a boy, we called these balsam apples, and I have no idea why we called them that. But they, it's a vining native, again, an annual, and its native habitat would be stream beds, swamps, moist thickets, or roadsides. And that's where we are seeing them. They have these, uh, as Karen mentioned, these pale yellowish-white flowers that are very fragrant. They're pollinated by insects. The fruit looks like a small, rounded, uh, cultivated cucumber, but it has spines all over it. It's spiky. Uh, John Finkler saw a Wilson's Warbler in Mankato. Uh, John of New Alm says, I, this was to you, I do hope Al does see a raven when he is in New Alm. I usually see one on the south end, Burger King area or downtown area by Cemetery, Cashwise area north. It would save me trying to take a photo, which is not easy. I have a crap camera. They scare easy, etc. I know what I see, but nobody believes me. Well, we are, we've all been in that boat, John. Yeah. Uh, I would put a $10 bet. I am right. I have seen them here for years, but only a few ravens. Hope it's not just one. One I see looks like it has a few wing feathers missing when it flies. Hope I am not the only person in New Ulm that sees them. will take a long time for a photo. Well, John, I hope that's what it is, and I'm willing to wait. I have looked. I get to New Ulm a lot. And I have not seen any. I've seen crows, and I've heard crows. Crows caw, and uh, ravens make this real deep croaking sound. Uh, There has never been a raven reported in Brown County, ever. Uh, There was one in Blue Earth County in 1953 and one in Martin County. Well, who has to report it, though? I mean, could John report it if he thinks he sees it? Or, or, I mean, how does it get reported? Who is the official that does that? The the Minnesota Ornithologist Union is the the primary source, but there's also eBird and all these other things, and then they they will do some of the the checking on it and and that kind of thing. So So. if he could get them down there to to prove it, then, then it could be official. Well, I'm one of those. Oh, well, you better go and start looking now. <laughs> I, I have been, yeah. Okay. And I, it would be, like I say, I get to New Home a lot. And um, I'll keep looking, John. I'm I'm on your side, so. By the way, he's got a question for you. Sure. He says, what do you call birds that flock together? I call them birds of a feather, but I bet that's not it. Velcros. Oh, Velcros. Oh, Man, and and he signed it, John the Raven Watcher. <laughs> there you go. You got a new, now if he's got anything that needs a handle, he can use that as a handle when he needs a, a little anonymity, maybe. That'd be good. Um, over the Audubon, uh, Paul Hansen is, we have a, a honey uh, We have a beekeeper, Elberly the Audubon. I'm a member, so I say we. Uh, he's going to do a honey extraction at the Hormel Nature Center. It'll be at the main building in Austin on Saturday, August 25th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Man, eight hours. There's almost no reason for missing it. Uh, Everyone and anyone is invited to come and watch at any point during that day and just see how they extract honey. And um, are at the Elberly Audubon Preserve in beautiful downtown Elberly area. There are three hives but one of them they lost Uh, just uh, not sure what happened to the bees there's also they're going to be holding their regular business meeting on tuesday september 4th 
at 6.30 p.m. at the Elberly Audubon Preserve at the end of Oregon Street. Rachel Christensen from the Elberly Lakes Foundation will visit with an update on the Environmental Committee. Our agenda will be a lot, and they said, uh, and then sadly, our October speaker will be Al Bat. So that, they got that in there. <laughs> uh, also, the Lost Marsh Sportsman's Night will be Friday, September 14th at 5.30 at the Waldorf Community Center in, as you might expect, Waldorf. If anybody would be interested or like tickets or something, Mark Jensen is the good guy to talk to there, and he's at 995 Four two nine six nine nine five four two nine six. Somebody uh, sent me a text and said, uh, "What birds eat Japanese beetles?" Boy, we'd hope they all would. Wouldn't it be cool if hummingbirds, those tiny little guys, <laughs> could eat Japanese beetles? And I have to say, I've never seen a bird eat one, but starlings. Robins, cardinals, catbirds, grackles, meadowlarks, pheasants, chickens, ducks, geese, and guinea fowl are purported to feed on the beetles. Now, this is a time of year when a lot of folks will be looking out at their lawn, and they'll say, was somebody firing off fireworks during the night? And I couldn't hear them. They had a silencer on the fireworks. There'll be places where there'll be holes in the lawn. Some areas the lawn will be rolled back like it's a sod company out there working the the graveyard shift. And these are typically the work of raccoons and skunks. And what the raccoons or skunks, we'll see more of them as the year goes on here. But what they're doing is looking for grubs. White grubs are the primary one, but they'll also be looking for Japanese beetle larvae. So they'll be eating those grubs. So Yay! Will, yeah. <laughs> and it's... Uh, some, we, if we get a lot of those grubs in the lawn, we get those brown spots. It looks like a dog's been out there um, using the lawn regularly for for purposes that dogs use lawns regularly well, for. So since I don't see the brown spots really in my lawn, does that mean that all the Japanese beetles are flying in from somewhere in the neighborhood? Because I really don't notice anything on the lawn that's a problem. And that's, that's very possible because uh, you've probably seen these or read about these Japanese beetle traps. Now, they've been able to do some testing on that, and they say, oh, yeah, they work. But if you put up one of these Japanese beetle traps, it attracts Japanese beetles from all over. So you end up with actually more Japanese mm-hmm. beetles than before you had to trap. Which, So if you just want to check and see what a bunch of beetles look like or how many you can catch <laughs> and set the neighborhood record, I guess Japanese <laughs> Beetle traps are wonderful things, but if you don't want a whole lot of Japanese beetles, maybe you should wait till maybe they'll come up with a another kind of thing that just discourages them from coming. Do you that think be- if if I put those those traps in the park or something, you know, that's across the street, do you think they'd go there instead of my house? <laughs> you know, I bet they would. Maybe that's I what I should do would. is set up a whole bunch of traps, trap them in the park, and and then hopefully they'd stay off of my yard. I talked to a a friend from Wisconsin the other day, and he said that he's had them for quite a few years, but he said the first year they had them was the worst in his yard. And he said it's come down a little bit each year, and he said this year, he said they're still out there, but he actually has to look for them. 
to find them. He said that first year, you know, he was stumbling over them. They were just everywhere. So I'm hoping that's what will happen here, that uh, they'll just hit this high peak right away, and then the numbers will go down. So guys like Tom Bovers won't be knocking 1,600 of them out of his garden in a day. That's just... (laughs) That's not good for a garden or or probably for a person's blood pressure either. You're out there saying, boy, I'm going to be eating all this stuff. And then you look out and see, well, something else is eating all this stuff. So it's um, it, there's, there's always something, always, always something. Uh, I got a question uh, the other day from someone who said, someone, someone who said someone told me that they found 27 dog collars in a bald eagle nest not far from here. Is this true? It, it sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? Uh, I, and that's because I, I think it's ludicrous. It, it's an Internet legend claimed to have happened in many locations. <clears throat> so no, no matter, I've heard this a lot, it seems like no matter where you live, somebody, will, no matter where I'm at, somebody that lives around there will tell me this story. It's not always 27 dog collars, but it's always... Always a good number. And just think, I can't imagine a eagle catching 27 little dogs. I mean, they don't want to be caught. So it, I, if fish had, wore dog collars, that might be true because that's what they do. But please understand, this isn't to say that an eagle wouldn't be capable of harming a small dog or even a, like my little chihuahua that I just wrote about in Birdwatcher's Digest, doing him in. I mean, it could do that. But the problem would be carrying it off and carrying it up to that nest. That would be very difficult. I know there's a video going around, and it's of a uh, uh, bringing a cat in. But uh, what what the extra, the writing down under said that the bald eagle had found this cat dead somewhere oh, and then took it up and fed its babies. So Hey, I got a fish question for you. You know, I've got sure. a pond in the backyard that we had made with a little waterfall. It's not real big. It's about a thousand gallons, but we put koi in there in the summer. And I, my son, Grant, who loves to just sit at the pond and, and watch it, uh, saw baby fish and I, I was sure I told them no they, they've got to be tadpoles because in the past I've seen like lots and lots of tadpoles in there and heard frogs and toads around there but sure enough there's four baby fish now does that mean that my fish are mating in there <laughs> and uh, how yeah and how do you know which ones I mean because in the uh, past you know I've had eight fish and and now I think there's seven because one died got you know swooshed down in the filter but they're they're little um and they're darker so of course, my koi are either bright yellow, bright orange, white, um, and so they're different colors. But these fish are sort of a, a dark, and then some of them have like little yellow or gold kind of shiny spots on their, their heads. Do f- most fish, are they born dark, and then their colors develop later when they're that they babies? I think it probably varies according to the, the species. Uh, a lot of them look, well, when they're very little fingerlings like that, they look nothing like what they will look like when they become adults. So uh, we'll just, you'll have to keep an eye on them and report back on a regular basis so we know what they are. Should I separate them? I mean, because, you know, I always take the the big fish out in the winter because the pond's not deep enough. It freezes solid. So I was wondering if I should try and take the babies out to feed them in a separate aquarium or or should I do anything different with them? My guess is I'll probably not be able to catch them, but if I can. 
That's what I was going to say. If you could catch them, it might not hurt. It'll be interesting. You know, I talk to people that put bass ponds in on farms, and they always end up with bullheads in there, it seems. Now, how would you and get they, a bullhead if there's no other fish around? Oh, I've heard all the stories. They come, the eggs come in on uh, the feet of birds oh. and all these kind of things. So I have no idea. We know they're not flying eggs, so we can rule <laughs> that out. And um, they're not shooting them in any kind of bullhead egg cannon, like a, a T-shirt cannon that they can fire them around. So I, I nobody really knows how they get in there, but they get in there. It's just and sometimes... Um, you know, I I know when I was growing up, people were always throwing minnows and bullheads in every bit of water they had, and cow tanks, we'd put bullheads in there to help keep the, a lot of the vegetation from growing in the cow tanks. So. Is there a possibility that these are the babies, though? Or would they have eaten I, them before they hatched? Yeah, that's what I don't understand if they... Yeah, I have. It is a mystery, and I'll be interested in hearing what they turn out to be. But they, they could be, they could be the kois? <laughs> I I would think so, yeah. Okay. And my first thing would be just like you. I would say, well, they're tadpoles. Right, but they definitely, as I looked at them, and they're about maybe three inches long now. Nice. Yeah, so. Well, you know. you're just getting such a wonderful environment there. You know, fish are coming from miles around. Just they <laughs> just have to, to fly them. in there. And they, maybe the Japanese beetles are carrying them in. They could. Once in a while, I will throw Japanese beetles in the pond, and sometimes the fish do jump up and they'll grab it in their mouth, and then I'll throw another one, and then they won't go back for it. They're not. (laughs) I think they learn. (laughs) You said one's enough, huh? Yeah, I think so. Well, speaking of food, I hope everyone will come to the cafe today where the food chain is missing a few links. A special is always a Heimlich maneuver, and gravy is considered a beverage, and now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders. Where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any. An auxiliary dog was yapping and yipping, keeping the world safe from squirrels. And we talked whenever the dog took a breath. The man had been thinking about a knee replacement. I try not to think of such things. I've never hit a deer, he blurted out. A person should never say that. It's tempting the fates. Now I worry that he'll be thinking about a fender replacement, too. He claimed his talent wasn't in remembering, it was in forgetting. He tried to remember what his mother had applied to his scraped knees. I offered Mercurochrome, but that (laughs) wasn't it. I said that memory is slippery and ephemeral, but the best way to remember is to forget about it. In the mob movies, that word usually followed a mobster saying, thanks for taking care of that thing we talked about. But I found if we stop chasing what we're trying to remember, we'll remember it. I hope you all remember good, good times today. And remember also that Heartland as well, we're driving past. Thanks for having nothing better to do than to listen to me. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Karen, I enjoyed your company very, very much. Al, it's always great to have you on. We'll be back next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Our good friend Albat, it is 1035. Here's some music from Amanda Shire's brand new stuff.